Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Sandy Jones. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. And if this is the first you're aware of it, um, please go to batgap.com and check it out. There are hundreds of interviews that have been done. They're all archived there. And uh, if you'd like to support our efforts, you can do it through the donate button on that page, on that site. So, uh, Sandy, is the literary executor for William Samuel. Many of you will not have heard of William Samuel, but I've gotten a couple of emails from people since I announced that I was going to do this interview saying, oh boy, William Samuel, he was really special and not many people know about him, so I'm so glad you're doing this. So Sandy's going to tell us about William Samuel, and she's also going to tell us about herself, because I think that the um, quality of a teacher, the effectiveness of a teacher, can be judged by getting to know some of his students. They tend to reflect the quality of a teacher, and Sandy was a close student of William Samuel's. She lives in Ojai, California, and take it from there. Sandy, tell us a little bit more about yourself and about William. Well, let's see. I agree. William is like an undiscovered gem. He had been teaching in the 50s and 60s, and I discovered him in the 70s. My mother used to be a, a reader of metaphysics. She had his books, and then years later, I found his book again, and I, that's when I found him. He's just absolutely brilliant, and he was making statements about the presence now, the power of now, really, way back in the early 60s. And uh, his message is incredibly clear and simple and beautiful. And so, yes, I would love to have people rediscover him. And that's kind of why I'm starting to come out here and give what I want to give. Yeah. And if anybody's thinking, well, you know, how important can somebody who is no longer alive be for me as a teacher? Uh, you know, just think of Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta or Papaji or Jesus or any of these people. I mean, we, we tend to give a lot of attention to teachers who have deceased and derive a lot of value from studying their, their teachings. So the same would apply to William. So William, uh, his life, he died in what, 96 or so? Yes, exactly. Uh huh. Yeah, born in yeah. 24, I think you said, or 28 yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, I think he was in his early 70s, so he was yeah. fairly young, but... Mm -hmm. uh, and he was a military man, and he was involved in World War II in China, battling somewhere or other in Western China, right? And then he had a he had a break, and he went down and met with Ramana Maharshi for a couple of weeks. That's exactly what the story is. He uh, went to see uh, Ramana Maharshi in uh, 1944, Four. I believe. Yeah. He never told anybody about that. He always kept it very... He did just say that he went to visit uh, this silent guru and that the silent guru had taught him how one can actually receive a beautiful message, let's say, or, or some kind of uh, inspiration or insight through the silence, just sitting there with that guy. And uh, But he didn't tell anybody who it was. It took me... 30 years, I think, to figure out who it was, uh, you know, because he wouldn't tell a soul, mm. which is a very interesting part of his, uh, what I loved about his teaching was that he didn't want anybody to be a follower of a particular teaching or dogma or, or he was anti, kind of anti 
Uh, Anti-adulation. Yes, there you go. Thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Do you think that maybe he didn't want people, he didn't want to name who that teacher was because he didn't want to sort of necessarily attach an endorsement to himself by saying, oh, I spent two weeks with Ramana. I was the first Westerner to be there, first American and so on. He just wanted whatever he had to say to stand on its own merits without some kind of imprimatur from his having been with Ramana. That is exactly what it was. What I love about his teaching is that I know what inspired me when I was first reading his books and everything is that he was all about freedom. And my heart is about freedom. And so when I started picking up on that, that there was not going to be any uh, rituals or disciplines or restrictions, or I'm going, yes, <laughs> this is my kind of teacher. And we clicked right off. Our compatibility and the way he would say things would just, the lights would go on. And what he loved about me was that he didn't have to really teach me. He only had to say something and I would go, yeah, okay. And so we would both get really enthused about this interchange of my enthusiasm for, for what he would open a door for me. And I, I, rather than clinging to him, I was finding freedom. And that gave him great joy to see that I did understand it and that it was about freedom. Did you spend much myself. actual FaceTime with him or was this mostly through correspondence? A lot of letter writing back and forth, telephone calls. Went to see him in Alabama about four times mm -hmm. and would stay maybe two days, not too long. And then he came to visit us in Aspen with his wife, Rachel, and that was really fun. I got to find out I mean, every time I'd go to see him, it was always such a kick because he had the best sense of humor. He was so funny and entertaining. Often he wouldn't even want to talk about this stuff, which he would just want to just enjoy. Mm. And he'd say, why are you coming here? Why don't you take your husband and go to New Orleans for a few days? <laughs> <laughs> and i just go, okay. <laughs> he was special. There's an interesting story around how you discovered that this teacher he had visited in 1944 was Ramana Maharshi. I'd like you to tell that story if you wouldn't mind. You told it in your interview with Jerry Katz and Non-Duality. Oh, yes. Oh. It, it's such a kind of a weird convoluted story. It's a little hard to tell. It was not easy to write. But everybody kept asking me, who was this silent teacher that Bill mentions? And I said, I don't know. I have asked everybody who used to know him. I even asked his wife, Rachel, before she died. And nobody knows. He told no one. So there came a point about, I think it's been about four years ago. I mean, I'm speaking to him across the distance here because he's gone, right? But I'm saying, Bill, if you could tell me who this guy is, I will get a double, it'll be a double message. It'll be, first of all, that you're ready to reveal who it was. And second of all, if you reveal it to me, I will share it with everyone because I think it's important. I said, I think people really want to know. And everybody suspects that it's Ramana Maharshi. And so I want to know. So I asked this out there and gosh, within days, it was just astounding. I don't know. It was a few weeks, whatever it was. I don't know how it happened, but it was one of those weird searches on the internet, and I'm going here and there and doing this and that. Unsuspecting, I come upon 
a website called The Wanderling. And where I turn up on his millions of pages, I turn up on this one page that says, and then among the people that I recommend is William Samuel, because I met him when I was a little boy at Ramona Maharshi's place. William Samuel was in China. He came to visit. I was a little boy. I was with, uh, there was another little boy, Osborne, um, Anyway, another little boy there, uh, his father was like the uh, biographer of uh, Ramana Maharshi's work. And so anyway, he tells this story about how he met William Samuel in 1944 and how they took that walk around the mountain in the moonlight. And so I go and I look, when was uh, there a walk? When was the moon out? And I look and it was like full moon, April 4th, something like that. And I just go, oh my gosh, this is my answer. It was that Bill truly was there and that's who it was. And it was so clear to me. I mean, it was absolutely obvious that that's what it was. And that I had gotten led to this Wanderlings website was so mystical. <laughs> and I just went, wow, Bill really did come through to me and guided me here. And Wanderling, who was a little boy at the time of meeting Bill, tells the whole story about him being there and who he was. And... And uh, so I put it all together, and I had my answer, and there was no doubt. So that's yeah, a cool story. Uh, yeah, really nice. Yeah. So what I'd like to do over the next hour, hour and a half, or however long we talk, is first have you kind of tell us a bit more about William's spiritual unfoldment. You know, his his awakening or whatever he might have called it, and you know how that came about and when and 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 whatever, and then summarize and it doesn't have to be a brief summary it can be quite a you know extensive un unfolding or expression of his teaching you know if if you can do that and then after that um and we might mix the order up but then probably after that your own story in the same respect you know i mean your the course of events that led to your uh spiritual development and um you know your perspective on things, you know. I, I heard some interesting things when I was listening to some other interviews with you that um, resonated nicely with the way I see things. So what do you think about that? I think that sounds lovely. Let's see if I can do it. <laughs> All right. So we'll start with William. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had some tidbits now of, you know, he was a military man. He went to yeah, he was fighting World War II. He went to Ramana Maharshi's ashram. But that's pretty sketchy. So let's unpack it some more. Well, okay, so um, he grew up uh, in Alabama, which is, you know, there in the Deep South, and uh, it was not an easy childhood. His mother was a Christian scientist, so that's what sort of got him started in understanding that God, truth, is a principle, the power of love, uh, because the Christian scientists even though they seem to have kind of, I feel that, and, and Bill felt it too, that they sort of lost track the true, what their original teaching was, which seems to happen with everything that gets, turns into an organized religion. It, it gets kind of destroyed. But anyway, he started with that, and that was sort of the roots of his beginning, was that everything is metaphysical. It isn't, it, everything is made of love and God is all. And that's the basic premise. God is all. 
what is this God? And then he goes on to explain uh, in, in all of his works where he's coming from when he uses this term, God is all. But it's very much based on uh, God is love. God is the infinite light. God is, God is life, a divine principle. Anyway, so that's what he was sort of raised with. And then his father sent him off to military school. That was only, he was like 14 years old. And he was a very sweet, kind, sensitive little boy that ended up in military school. And that was rather brutal. He tells a lovely story that during military school, he kept getting these visions of being this pure child. There was a child that would sort of come to him and sort of save him during this time in military school. He had some profound visions and he was a profound being even as a little boy and you mean like it was his own inner child or it was a feeling of an uplifted joy it was a feeling of everything's okay that there was something watching over him that everything was going to be all right and it felt very he called it the child because it was so pure and like uh, a guardian angel kind of like thing, a right? guardian angel yeah. yes uh -huh. okay. and it would sort of lift his spirits okay and it had a lot to do with his, he related it a bit to, because he had been raised with the Christian science, he at that time re related it a bit to this sort of a Christ consciousness kind of thing that people will talk about, that this light would sort of fill his being. And so he called it this child. But he said he would lose this child. It would come and go and he'd lose it and he'd feel so bad when it was gone. Anyway, he suffered through military school, but by the end of military school, he had become a um, captain, captain, and they made him captain of infantry, and they sent him off to the worst place in China. And he was like 18, 18 years 18 old, 18 right? years old, yeah. 18 years old, captain of infantry, leading his troops through the outbacks and the mountains and the treachery of this ends of the earth place in China. That's what he did. And the stories are amazing because this young man had to go through killing. I mean, there was killing and squalor, mass destruction and bombs going off. And he writes about that in some of it, and in one of his books or a couple of his books. And as a student of okay, wanting to understand uh, enlightenment, let's say, you start reading this and you go, wow, this is amazing that this man walked, that, that he had this light within him and still had to go t into a war and do battle and live like this. And you just, you're, yeah. you're amazed by his. Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, truly. He writes about it beautifully because one of his stories is about how in the middle of bombs going off and his men dying and people dying and he writes about this state of silence that occurred to him that happened to him and that we're in this silence above beyond all the commotion and all the terror he was at peace and there was this beauty and this light and he could walk through 
and go over to his men and make sure they were okay. And he was calm. And, and you read about this in his book. And so that's a very inspiring. And you start to pick up on what he's talking about because he writes in a way that this is the beauty of his work. He writes in a way that you can feel, you can actually get in touch with this presence, this sweet, silent awareness. And it washes over you as you're reading his work. And you just go, wow, this is amazing. And those were his first few books. Um, he takes a big leap in his third book, but I'll get to that later. Those books set that foundation of the discovery of this presence that is here, no matter what might be going on, that one can find this uh, inner grace, balance, light, peace, and walk through things. And that, for me, uh, that was the key. That was like, yes, that's it. If you can walk through this world with that inner calm, understanding what it is you're looking at, understanding what this world is. And so that's how we would communicate when we started communicating with each other. But anyway, back to his yeah, work. Yeah, because so, at this stage, he hadn't really no, done, he done hadn't. any spiritual he practice hadn't. or much seeking or anything. He was just a kid. Right. But he already ha it was imbued with a lot of silence, which right. is so he did good get quality it. for I mean, a military yeah. commander to have, actually. Oh, beautiful. And huh. he does even say, he will even give us, you know, Maybe in the middle of battle, these things happen. Do you know? Maybe you're so stressed that this is some way of protecting yourself, you know? So it's kind of beautiful the way he is always open to not drawing major conclusions about anything. And I love that, you know, yeah. because for me, it all keeps growing and going and we keep learning. So, although these days, you know, a lot of soldiers are coming back with PTSD and well, you they know, are. So they don't really have the resilience well, he didn't. that he had. I mean, yeah, he, he had resilience. He had that spirit somehow. Yeah. I think it was the background found. I think it was his background he came from where he was just meant to be this. I, you know, you never know. Yeah, I would also suggest that he was born in, in a high level of consciousness. And exactly. Already yes, had a lot of so. being established, you know. I think that was it, yes. Yeah. And so during his time in China, and he writes this so cute and so funny, and this is where you get his humor, and I don't have a gift for humor. <laughs> I have a gift for laughter, but not a gift for telling jokes. So anyway, during the war, he was given an interpreter. And he tells this funny story about, because he was the youngest kid there, he got the last choice. And he ends up with this little fat Chinaman who turns out to be almost royalty. He had been a Taoist monk, a very revered Taoist monk who could speak English and speak English very fluently. And so Bill ends up with this, this Taoist monk who was to be his Chinese interpreter. This is Mr. Shea, and he writes about Mr. Shea, and Mr. Shea walks hand in hand with Bill through this war and becomes way more than his interpreter. 
teaches him, keeps teaching him the Tao of living, the flow, the light, the truth, and teaches him all the way through. And there's a wonderful story about how they're trying to escape uh, the, the Japanese and the Japanese are after them and and they're on the run and they've got their troops and they're climbing through mountains. And I, it sounds at this point, it's almost just Bill and Mr. Shea out there in the middle of the mountains. And Mr. Shea falls down and can't, he's, he's an old guy and he falls down and he can't get up and he's pointing at something and he's pointing across and Bill says, what are you, why are you pointing? And, and Mr. Shea's like almost sick, you know, he's just laying there, just almost dying. And he keeps pointing at something. And Bill says, what are you pointing at? What, what? Yes, I see the damn mountains beyond. I know we got to get there. I know. Get up, old man, get up. Then he looks and he gets down at his level and he says, wait. And he looks and Mr. Shea is pointing at a beautiful little flower coming up through the snow. Wow. And he goes, oh, my God. And so it was this kind of teachings, you know, that yeah. you just go, wow, extraordinary. Now, the other thing Bill does that I really appreciate, and, and I know that people are so speedy nowadays, it's hard to do this, but Bill teaches in stories. He's a storyteller. That rings really beautiful to my heart. I get stories. I understand storytelling. I, I'm kind of like, you know, a fan of the mythical and, and, and the, the Joseph Campbell kind of. Oh, that, I love that stuff. And Bill teaches with that formula, and it worked for me. It's a beautiful way to teach for me. I'm very uh, poetic and, a, and an artist, and so that worked. Uh, I can barely listen anymore to the very uh, intellectual inquiry or however they're calling it. I mean, I almost get belligerent. I just go, <laughs> wait, you know, yeah. just stop you know find your heart speak from speak your truth you know don't just rattle off intellectual nonsense it doesn't mean anything anyway sidetracked again yes bill uh, the war then he, he came home his father owned a bakery in uh, alabama and bill took the bakery over when he came home from the war before his, he came home from the war, he did this stint with Ramana. Oh, exactly. Anything more to say about that? Yes. After what, what he writes in his book is that he says, yes, uh, words can get in the way. And his little description is why he's saying words can get in the way. And he says, I went and sat with a silent guru and I came, I came out of there with more than I've ever gotten from words. Yeah. He said, don't let words get in the way. He said, you can get it by just listening with your heart. So he sat at Ramana's feet for two weeks and Ramana didn't say a word. Didn't say a word. And then the day they were leaving, Ramana said, you, you've, you've learned a lot here or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he says, wow, you know, I didn't think I had. And he said, by three months later, I went, wow, I had learned a lot. Yeah. He had really been given something. And of course, Bill wouldn't use those terms that they use today, you know, like this transmission or however they call it. But I, you do know that something incredible happened between the two of them. And the gift for me was when I made this discovery who it was, and then that Bill had given me license to tell people now who it was. 
it was such a joyful feeling because I know how many people respect and, and admire Ramana Maharshi's teachings. And, and I haven't read any of his stuff. I must say, I just don't read a lot. And I, my inspiration has been purely just my own self, my own heart, my own little trip. But I don't know anything about uh, Indian philosophies, and I'm I'm slow at that. <laughs> so so you know you won't get a lot out of me with all that. But I know I do pick up enough that I realize how important uh, Ramana Maharshi is to everybody, and I feel so honored that between Bill and Ramana Maharshi and me, there is this sweet little triangle of uh, of love, and uh, I'm here to share that, and yeah. that's what I want to do. Okay, so then he came back to Alabama after the war. Back to Alabama, uh, ran his little bakery, and wrote his first little book, because the atheists would always come by his bakery. Back then, it was like his bakery was kind of like the... Uh, like a Starbucks. Yeah, like, yeah, like a, yeah, where people would kind of meet and have little talks. Well, the atheists would come through every year, going on their way to Florida from California. Well, that's funny you should say that because I was thinking, well, how did he scrape up atheists in Alabama? But I guess they were coming through from California. They were California, <laughs> Florida, yeah. 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 And uh, they would, I don't know how they found him, you know. Uh -huh. But also I know that the university was there and I know the university students, you know, would come to see Bill too. So he was very hip with the young people at that time. This was in the late 50s, I'd say, and get starting to go into the 60s. So he wrote his first little book called Two Plus Two Equals Reality, and it was a little basic book because he wanted to explain to these atheists what he meant by his term God, because he, they came to talk about God, but of course they came to argue about God. Right. And he would say, wait, you're only arguing about the definition. You're not arguing about the truth. And so he wrote that first little book, Two Plus Two Equals Reality. I have it in many different formats. One of them is a free gift I just give away in a little PDF for people, and you can find it on the internet. The other is you can find it on Amazon and all that. We'll link to it from, uh, but, your, yeah. from your page. But it's on, a wonderful little book because he, he describes so beautifully with analogy again, and he uses a lot of analogy, which works with me, how... God, when he uses that term, he's talking about a principle, something you can't see, but something that's real. There is, and then he describes how math, mathematics, arithmetic is a principle. And all the numbers exist because the principle exists. And so he relates this to his word and why he can use the word God so freely, which was beautiful to me because I think. I like to use the word God. I, it means everything to me. It's like, yes, how else do you describe something that's infinite and impossible to describe? We use the term God. And um, that's you, so abundantly intelligent and all Exactly, yeah, exactly. And it has no beginning and no end, and it existed before anything existed. And how does that be? It's got to be what we call God, some yeah. kind of beginning that didn't begin, you know, and yes, we can call it first cause and we can call it you know, a source. But to me, those don't touch my heart. The word God is beautiful to me and I love it. So I use it. Now, uh, before we go on, one of the things I noticed in William's, one of William's books is that he uh, emphasizes that you really don't want to 
be talking about things that you haven't personally experienced or you know investigated on the basis of experience. So at this stage in the story, William is still a fairly young man in his early 20s, and already he's you know beginning to write books. So you know, and I know you consider William to have been an enlightened man or a self-realized man. So at whatever point is relevant in in your unweaving of this story, please describe his when that realization took place or what the nature of it was. Because there are a lot of people out there, and I want to probably emphasize that William was not one such person, who are good philosophers, you know, but who are not necessarily realized in an experiential sense. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Uh, he was experiencing all kinds of light and truth and enlightenment all during, well, during the war, after the war, while he was working at the bakery. I mean, this book was written on what he did know and discover, and he was living it all those years. He was living it. He was, he would often say, you know, you just really have to, if you get a message, if you if you get a glimmer of the truth, Put it to practice, test it, try it, see if it works. He always recommended, prove it, test it. He says, don't take my word for it, test it, go find out for yourself. So for him, was there any sort of enlightenment under the Bodhi tree moment, or was it just much more of a incremental yeah, he, kind of a un development? It was incremental, and he often, very often uses the expression, which I love, and it's biblical, but it is, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And so for him, it was a slow, gradual unfolding and a discarding of what wasn't it. His living it, his journey, it, it was slow. He does tell about a few, like that, the experience of the silence during the war is was a major uh, in moment. Mm -hmm. He also tells about what he calls his pond experience which he says was when he learned, he says he, he was taking a, he used to like to hike the hills of Alabama. He loved nature. And so he was on a walk. He was constantly searching. He was always open to, you know, learning and living and seeing the truth. So he would go on these nature walks and um, he was going to go camping. And he came to a pond and he tells the story that he bends down to take a drink from the pond and he looks back up and the whole world had changed. Mm -hmm. He said it was just filled with beauty and light and love and glory and it was a new dimension. And he was just going, oh my God, I found it. I found it. This is it. And he's joyfully going on his little hike and he's going to go camp out up on the top of the mountain and he comes to a man on a little farm on the side of the road and they chat and he says, he's just, it's just glorious. And he gets to the top of the mountain, he lights his little fire, and then this gloom, this darkness, just starts to come over him. And he's just there, alone, fire burning in the darkness on this mountain. And he, he's just, the agony and the pain and the sorrow and the loss and the suffering is huge. Then how he tells his story is by the morning, he wakes up and he realizes that this was to show him that this light, it has an isness to it and a not is to it. And he had the hardest time trying to explain this and he calls it 
contradistinction. Mm -hmm. And eventually in my life, I saw what he's talking about. I saw exactly what he meant. It is very difficult to explain, but this, this seeing that what is not is exactly what leads us to what is. Mm. And so its beauty is in that it is a part of the journey to take us to what is. And we don't discard it, we understand it. Yeah. Also, as I understand it. the whole dark night of the soul experience, which many, many people have, what, there can very often be uh, you know, profound spiritual awakening, and that serves to sort of dredge up a lot of hidden stuff, you know, that ultimately has to be cleared through in order for that awakening to really be established. So it could very well be that he had that experience by the pond and it, it kind of really stirred up some sleeping elephants, you know, <laughs> that needed to really be cleared out of the territory before he was free to roam in that territory without fear of getting trampled. Very, very true. Yes, a beautiful way to put it. I'm sure that that was probably exactly what that was. Mm -hmm. um, and that's right. Uh, the fearlessness, uh, those to see that the darkness isn't real, that's when the fearlessness happens. That's when the true joy of living in that freedom happens. And yeah. uh, yeah. So after that morning, when he had that, you know, the dark night, and then the morning kind of like, you know, it's almost literal and figurative here. Yeah, uh, exactly. Was that sort of like a, an epiphany? And, and thereafter, he was, you know, I would say yes, he yes, I would say that's true. But he often want then he wants to tell people, you know, just because you have a road to Damascus experience, he says it's not necessary. And he does say that this is a slow, long journey. So even though that did happen for him, he still doesn't put a whole lot of uh, emphasis on that that's right. how one has to arrive there. Yeah. And I'm just, nice. I'm just kind of probing you here because, you know, I agree with that. And But a lot of people are kind of looking for the the big wow experience after which they're just going to be able to rest on their laurels and be home free you know but um you, you talk to even very advanced spiritual teachers and they say well i've had many awakenings and it just keeps exactly unfolding yes yeah. yes and that's how it was with bill too even though you know he had this and he had that and yes they were glorious moments i have two boxes full of his old uh, journals that haven't ever been published so it's mm -hmm. kind of like his private journals he suffered a lot. He went up and down, and, and it took a lot for him to give what he's given to us. Yeah. It killed him, really. How so? Well, I think that's what kind of made he He died of a heart condition, mm -hmm. and I do believe that his heart had just been kind of like literally torn to pieces, you know, trying to bring what it was he was supposed to bring to us. And I think he gave us the gift of his life in a way. I mean, uh, why would that be a heart rending experience trying to teach truth? I should uh, think it would it, be edifying. It was hard for he no, he uh he didn't like it. He wanted to just go wander the hills and mm. and enjoy the rivers and mm -hmm. And he tried to teach in a very uh, simple, joyful, easy way, and he did do that. But people were always his, complicating it. Yes, exactly. Uh -huh. It was very difficult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and he didn't really want all this, he would turn people away until they would come to him for the third or fourth time. Mm. He would not just let anybody come to see him. He did not want a following. He did not want to be idolized right. or uh, be thought of as a guru. He didn't even want to be thought of as a teacher. He says, I'm just telling you my story. Mm -hmm. But he knew, he knew that he was here to give us what he had to give. So you think that casting pearls before swine actually killed the guy? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not so sure, but you know, people will say, well, if he was so enlightened, why did he, you know, have this physical, you know, problems? And I'm just oh, like, oh, that's well, silly. Could, I, you mean, know, you know, I mean, you know, exactly. Yeah, you can and name any like, number no. of spiritual teachers who had physical problems who, yeah, who were very exactly. enlightened. I mean, Nisargadatta with his cigarettes and everything. Right. Doesn't have anything to do with it. I mean, I, I've discovered that as, you know, the beauty is the freedom to live with what you are and what you ha do and be and uh, and not put uh, any importance on the physical conditions yeah you know yeah. Which is not to say, I mean, some people say, oh, do whatever you want, drink and smoke and take drugs. Right. And it do doesn't matter. It's just physical. But, you know, the body is the temple of the soul and it's the vehicle to higher consciousness. But nonetheless, there have been some very enlightened people who've, you know, had cancer or right. you know, exactly. various other things and didn't lose their enlightenment exactly. by virtue of it. Exactly. And that was an that's another point. What he brings with this is that because he did come out of Christian science, which is very much about trying to manifest what manifesting the, the beauty of the light within you should be manifested in the world. So there should all be perfection everywhere. And of course, he had to leave that behind because he realized that isn't how it works either. So there was a lot of things that he had to leave in the dust and realize that that wasn't it either, which is a gift in itself, because it's like he already sort of for me, he broke the trail and he said, that's, that's not it. Trying to manifest your world to look like this perfection that you understand or, or realize, you know, the realization of God's perfection being everything, it doesn't manifest necessarily in what we think of as perfect. Yeah, because we actually are not running the show. <laughs> that's right. God and we is, don't know right? what perfect is. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. All right, so, so we've gotten a sense of William's personal journey in terms of continual unfoldment and, and exploration and deepening and you know, uh, greater and greater clarity. So if you were to summarize, let's say you're on a plane flight with somebody and you had an hour or so, not that we have to go on nonstop for an hour about it, but you had a good bit of time to, to really explain to them what he taught. How would, how would you summarize his teaching? For me, he taught the very basic premise, and if you get this, if you really trust this, it, it's true. His basic premise is that God is all there is. There's nothing else. This experience we're living is the light and presence of God, and we are the expression of this infinite presence and to be able to really see that is to trust to trust to walk in it to see if it's real and then to walk in this 
and to realize it is true, this is it. I mean, it's exactly what, that, that's all there is to it. It's that simple and that pure, really. So most of the people who are listening to this will agree with that statement that God is all there is, as long as we understand what we mean by God. And most people listening to this program will not think of God as some old dude in the sky with a right. beard, you know, exactly. but more the all-pervading intelligence right. that's uh -huh. at uh -huh. every level of creation governing things. But it's one thing to hear a statement like that, and another thing altogether perhaps for it to become a living reality that one sort of lives and breathes 24-7. So, um, you know, many philosophers and, and others have, we, and we've all read spiritual books with that kind of concept presented. So right. how, does, how do we go from appreciating the concept to having it be a, kind of a living, breathing, nitty-gritty, you know, 24-7 experiential reality for us? First, I would say you have to you have to be brave. Mm -hmm. You have to let go of, and it's just like everybody else describes. It's exactly that. You do have to like uncover, let go, trust that this is true. Um, I don't know. I don't know. See, that's why I can't why I keep saying I'm not a teacher I can only tell what I have discovered but and live what I've discovered I'm not even so sure if I can tell what I've discovered <laughs> I can live what I've discovered and I'm living what I've discovered and I know it's real and I the joy of this wonder of this presence is here and I would give that if I could and that's what Bill gave to me. And so I guess for me, it's almost like, boy, he wrote all those books, page after page. If it did it for me, and maybe this is this is why I, I'm out here in, in these days, is that if he did it for me, and he did, his, his words eventually, took a long time, but eventually they soaked in, they soaked in. I got a little here, I got a little there. You still have to go on your journey. You have to go on your own heartfelt listening to yourself and not to anyone else. You have to trust what yourself is telling you. You have to trust your own words. It all comes back to you. And so to say, what did Bill say? What he said was for me to do it myself, for me that I had it, that it's in me, that I can do it, that it isn't in him, that it's mine and it's in my heart and it's always there. And I was given this since time began. And so I start going, okay, okay, I can do this. I think that's more of his message than anything else, even though he's written these three books that are profound. Those books, all they did was they kept bringing me back to me. Hmm. They didn't take me anywhere else but back to me. And uh, I think that may be where the message really is. So I'm getting two things here. One is Bill spent a couple of weeks sitting at Ramana Maharshi's feet. Ramana didn't say a word, and at the end he said, you've learned a lot, and Bill went on his way. Uh, so obviously, 
we don't, maybe he didn't use the word transmission, but if Ramana had any effect on him, and I'm sure he had a profound effect, it was at a level beyond words. There was, there was some mm -hmm. transmission or resonance yes, or, or yes. uh -huh. um, entrainment or whatever word you Oh, wanted. yes. Yeah. That's, that's Bill's word. Thank you. Did Bill he use entrainment? Bill just spoke to you that word. Yes. Oh, that's that a good word. Yeah. Entrainment <laughs> means like two, two mm -hmm. frequencies kind of come into, yes. like in a, a, a laser light. You know, you ha yes. ordinary light is all incoherent. You have all the wavelengths going yeah. every which way. Yeah. But uh -huh. in a laser light, all the photons line up synchronously and they become entrained and even mm -hmm. if a small percentage of the photons begin to do that all the, the rest of the photons kind of join in and follow suit and you have like one big beam of light that acts like a single photon so there's this entrainment principle when you sit at the feet of somebody like Ramana so that was major for Bill and then for you obviously you immersed yourself in Bill's books and read them over and over again and but, and you had conversations with Bill, and, e and not emails in those days, but letters with Bill. But you also got together with Bill. So you actually had time, spent time with a guy who had spent a couple weeks with Ramana. And it seems to me that for you, perhaps even also the entrainment principle was more significant than all the words. But I'm going on a little long here. But also, I would say that the words were very important because you have to remove doubts. You know, you have to sort of gain right. self-confidence. Self right. And Bill did that with you like layer after layer after layer and, and instilled in you over time the confidence to kind of stand on your own two feet and, and live this. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Yes, exactly. Going back to that entrainment idea, too, he does tell a story. He, he did a, uh, a talk, his last talk. It was held in White, Georgia, and it was a weekend. He talks about entrainment, and he uses, rather than your description, but I must say he loved quantum physics, mm -hmm. loved it. His last book is, has a lot of the quantum physics in it, so if you like quantum physics, you're going to love his last book. Which one's his Even last the, book? The last book was The Child Within Us Lives. Okay. A synthesis of science, religion, and metaphysics. Mm, and that was that's very good. Mm -hmm. That one just that one blew my mind. That one was the one that took me took me there. Took me still again. I must say, it took me a long time. At first, I read that book and I just said, "What is he writing about? <laughs> He's completely gone off from his absoluteness. You know, his there's only one. You know, and then what is this child? What are we doing here?" <laughs> But I knew, I knew that I trusted him. I knew he knew something I didn't know. And so I kept going with it. And he said, he told me, keep going. You're going to get there. Keep going. This is it. If you've trusted me this far, believe me. Anyway, that's his last book. But he talked about entrainment. He said that if you put all these pendulum swinging clocks in one room, mm -hmm. that eventually they'll all start swinging together. Yeah. I was going, wow, is that magical? There are a lot so of examples of that. description of it. Yeah, yeah I mean, in, in nunneries, all the women mm -hmm. eventually begin to have their menstrual cycle in, oh, right. in sync with one another, you know? Exactly. And there's there's exactly. all kinds of examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so he loved that. That was his word, entrainment. So I think he just spoke to you there. He He's there with you. <laughs> hey, Bill. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he loves this. I can feel him. He used to just look, he'd, he'd go, oh, I'm clapping my hand. He'd clap his hands like a little boy. You know, yay! Just he had such a little boy to him. I just loved it, you know. And I, I love that spark of. I mean, after all he'd been through, amazing that this man was so delightful. 
Just yeah, really. I mean, considering all the, the brutal, and he also went to the Korean War. I mean, oh, he could have been, he, yes. he could have ended up a basket case in a VA hospital or something. Oh, he. I oh, hope that wasn't politically incorrect. I get, I get blasted for saying things like that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but anyway, but the, it could have yeah. been, it could have turned out very differently. Yeah. What happened was after the bakery, he got called. Uh, I don't know when Korean War started. Fifty-two, uh, I think, or fifty-two, fifty, somewhere in that range. He had to go back in, and he went into the Korean War. He doesn't talk about that one as much, but he said that was even worse mm -hmm. than being in China. Yeah. But this time, he knew who he was, yeah. and he did it, uh -huh. and he walked it. That was his confirmation that he had found and was living this new light that was coming to him. Yeah. And so going into battle again was his living proof that he was, I just, I'm hearing the word immune, yeah, no, <laughs> but you know. Establish just, an equanimity. You know the story of the Bhagavad Gita, don't you? That Arjuna, the great warrior, didn't want to fight the battle. And he said, I, I'm just not going to do it. And he sat down in his chariot. And then his charioteer, who happened to be Lord Krishna, said, well, you have to. And, but first, get established in being, you know, get established in the self, then perform action. And you won't, you won't be making mistakes and you won't be overshadowed yeah. or overwhelmed by the experience. Uh -huh. You'll be established in equanimity in the midst of all the intense diversity that you're about to experience. Wow, yes, that's exactly what it was like for him on this second, the second time he had to go to war. Yeah. And I guess in some ways it was kind of a beautiful experience because he realized how much he understood now and how it had transformed him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had been transformed. Uh, so he was capable of going through that and uh, doing whatever he had to do there. Yeah, Korean War. And then he came home, and that's when he really started writing his books. All right, so um, I had been asking you about, to summarize his teaching, and you said one, one major thing is just that God is all, and, and all is within God. <laughs> that's um, about it. Yeah. Like, well. There's a friend of mine, Francis Bennett, who likes to say his little slogan on his Facebook page or something is like, God is in everything, and everything is within God. It's sort of like this totality kind of statement. So that's a good starting place. Now, uh, what are some other like tidbits and details and facets of, of what he taught? Well, he did uh, be long before all the uh, non-duality books started coming out, uh, you know, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, whatever it's been and gotten very popular. He was writing, you, you read the beginning of his, of his book, a guide to awareness and tranquility and he mm -hmm. starts right off with there's only now mm -hmm. and you just go well this guy was writing about there's only now you know and he writes it so beautifully and makes it so uh, available and this is why i love his work is because and this many people have told me this what happens when you read his work is you will be able to understand all the other guys who have come along behind him. He makes it possible to understand everybody else's stuff because something about the way Bill writes and the way he makes these statements about here and now and the presence and the allness and the oneness you begin to understand this all-inclusive, there isn't a battle with an ego. Mm -hmm. 
There isn't a battle with trying to get rid of something. There's not this annihilation thing that the uh, very absolute guys tend to, you know, uh, there's always this struggle. There's always this almost a almost an anger and a, and a bitterness about that there's this terrible part of us that stands in the way of the truth. And I'm just going, yeah, old-time religion, you know, it's like you, you're still carrying around that there's this sinner standing in your way. And Bill's message is this, the truth is, is that you are already this holy beauty, this holy light of this presence. Uh, for me, and this is the only way I can kind of get into Bill's work, is to say how, it, how it's understood for me. But for me, it was the realization that there wasn't anything standing in my way. And I just went, wow, this is amazing that they use this word ego as if it's like some something real. And I go, you shouldn't even be using the word because it like it you start believing there's something there that is connected to this word and i'm going the if there's an ego it's the all-encompassing identity that we are it's the identity that makes us aware of knowing i'm here it's my wholeness it's the sense of knowing i am i don't want to even use the word ego in a negative sense anymore. It's like, yeah. to me, I want to use the word ego as the joy that leads me. If it did anything, if there was something in me that caused me anguish, it caused it so that I would walk through the door, so that I would search, so that I would go, so that I wouldn't just uh, accept the world as, a, as an objective place, that I would go, wait, what is this world about? Who am I? Uh, you know, it's like the ego was a beautiful part of me. It was holding me and walking with me and saying, look, it isn't the way you think it is. And and so there's a whole combination of a lot of things, but, but that was part of it for me was that he explained ego in a way that made it so that it wasn't something I had to get rid of. It was something I had to understand. And there's a difference there. My understanding of ego, and let, let me, you can tell me how well this um, jibes with, with Bill's understanding or teaching of it, is that it's a, it's a necessary faculty without which we wouldn't be able to function in the world. We wouldn't know to put food in our mouths. We, we, there'd be no distinction between ourselves and a, a fire or a, a rock or anything else. Right. And, and on some level, there is no distinction, but there needs to be on another level some distinction in order for us to function. <laughs> and uh, But that functioning faculty tends to become our the be-all and end-all for many people. They think, well, that's all I am is this thing. And to the people who say, I, there is no self, I am not a person, I would say, sure, you're a person. You're just not only a person. You know, there's, there's prim fundamentally, primarily, and, and predominantly, you are much more than just a person, but you're also a person. Otherwise, you couldn't be talking to me. Exactly. And that's when the beauty starts to happen. And that's what his third book is about, huh. is that there is this third position. It's the understanding of myself as both. And yet, I am neither, in a sense. Mm -hmm. I am beyond, beyond both. 
but I'm at that third place. And when I discovered that, I said, wait, this is, this is what they're talking about when they talk about the Holy Trinity. Yeah. There's three going on here. And with this discovery of what he calls the child, which is the original self, which is who you truly are, you get to see all of it at the same time. There's no more, it's this, it's that, and it's this three become one. You can, and yet so, you can So what still, are the three you're referring to? Well, for me, it's like he describes it in a way that's a little hard for me to, to put into words, but just on my own wording, for me, it's like there's this, it's like a triangle. And so at the very peak of the triangle is the true identity, who you really are. Mm -hmm. And that encompasses the bottom of the triangle, which is I am Sandy in a body mm -hmm. who seems to have been born into this world and has a birthday and will go be leaving this world someday. I am also along this linear line at the other end, the infinite all that is, but I'm more than that. Mm -hmm. I am those two things combined, which also makes like an alchemy of those two things become a third, which is greater than both. Absolutely. This is the way the Vedanta describes Brahman, actually. There, there's a beautiful verse in one of the Upanishads which goes like, two birds sit on the self-same tree. One eats of the fruit and the other does not. And it sort of describes the situation of our being an individual functioning in the world and yet being something which does not partake of experience, which is beyond the realm of experience, which is silent, absolute, nothing going on there. Um, and yet the two together be yeah. become a wholeness that's, great, that's greater than the sum of their parts. And, and that's what Brahman is supposed to be when they speak of Brahman consciousness. It's the knower creates Brahman. The absolute alone would be nothing. It would be flat, no experience. The knower, yeah. Yeah, the knower oh. creates Brahman. Mm -hmm. Creates the that's... wholeness that's more than the sum of absolute and relative put together. That's it. That's it. Then you become the knower. Right. And that's like, I can be confident. I can be whole. I don't have to take any of this baloney. I can see it all. I got it. And, you know, when somebody's, you know, way over here on this other extreme of there's nothing, you just go, oh, boy, you haven't seen how <laughs> much one of the there birds. is. <laughs> that's just one bird. Yeah. And then you get to have the two birds together. Exactly. That's beautiful. Thank you. But that's exactly what it is. And that's what he's writing about in this child book. And I know a lot of people don't kind of don't get attracted to this book because they go, the child, what a strange thing to be called. You know, nobody wants to, under, to the child within us lives. It's like, you know, and there was a point where I thought, I wonder if I should change the title to his book. And I felt him say, nope, no. He says, I want it that blatant that out there just let the people find it that are meant to find it and they will find it yeah. and uh you, so you mean say, you're not going to change it to get rich and lose weight right. like, <laughs> like, like uh, rachel ray or something right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then they then they buy the book they say oh what's this <laughs> right, right, right. exactly oh well, i thought about it <laughs> oh gosh yeah. so but that's, that's it. it, and that's what this child likeness is. It encompasses 
both both ends and everything in between. And then you get to live the whole joy of living again. And that's why for me, when I finally discovered this, I went, oh, this is being born again. I'm just going, I've been born again. I have come back to really who I was as a little girl, but this time I know what I have and I know who I am. Yeah. And there's a difference because once you know. Come full circle. Yes. And then you get the joy of knowing. And it, it reminded me of like a little kid. Mom's watching her little kid tie, learn to tie her shoes. And mom's going, now let her do it herself. She's got to do it. She's going to get it. She's going to get it. And then one day the little girl goes, I learned to tie my shoe. Look, mommy, look, mommy, I learned to tie my shoe. It's the knowing that you know. And then you've got it. And you can always forever tie your shoes. And I'm just like, oh, yes, this is what he was talking about. And why it's so childlike is because it's just so, so spirited and so alive and so, and it is moment to moment. And it is living in the presence, but you don't have to remember all that stuff. You don't have to meditate. You don't have to stand on your head. You are completely free being yourself and a self that you are fully familiar with. This self for me and yourself for you is a self that you're, you go, oh, I remember being that little boy. I remember who he is. I love that kid. And so it's like, it becomes this beautiful, again, it is a combination, but it's an all-knowing combination. And, and the sweetness of finding yourself and saying, oh, I love that little girl. I remember her. She was so fearless and so spunky. And yeah. You come back to that. It's there's an original self, and each one of us has our very own. And I'm just going, wow, God is good. I mean, this is great. This is like I get to live my life in this joy of being full again. Nice. It's like that. Seems to me there's kind of a pendulum thing that happens in life uh, where, you know, we're, we're a baby and we're all being, but we can't function in the world. And then we get more and more and more into the world and learn how to function in it, but we get totally lost in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we maybe get on the spiritual path and we think, oh boy, the transcendent. And we, we kind of go for that and wake, and wake up to that. And many people kind of hide out there for a while and, and, mm -hmm. and it's sort of unmanifest and the world is an illusion and I'm not a person and it's all unreal and to hell with the environment and whatever, you know. But but then the pendulum eventually needs to swing again and say, oh, this too, you know, like we've been saying, the, the, the two wholenesses, the two fullnesses. You know that oh, there's, there's a, I, don't know, I, won't go, I won't quote. No, do, go. Oh, well, go. there's this beautiful Upanishadic verse. I hope I can do justice to it. It goes, Purnamada, Purnamidam, Purna, Purnamudachate, Purnasya, Purnam, Adaya, Purnam, Eva, Vashishate. And it, it means, whoo, I did that. It, mean, <laughs> it means Good. this is full, that is full. Oh. Take, taking fullness from oh. fullness, fullness remains. Oh, um, absolutely. And, That's uh, it. Yeah, so it's like That's there's a beautiful. pendulum thing. And so, so we kind of can go easy on the, you know, the world is an illusion crowd because th their pendulum just hasn't swung back yet to incorporate this as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very true. And 
what Bill says in The Child, which was really intriguing to me, and I had to finally fully understand it, but he would keep saying, once you discover this, you'll be back in the world doing what you have to do. And I go, oh, this is now I get it. And in many ways, that's why I'm doing now what I have to do. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm writing my own book. That's why I'm, uh, I mean, even for me to to attempt getting on Facebook, I mean, I was not one of the first people out there, believe me. This is, I haven't been able to figure out all this stuff, but I've been doing Bill's books for about 15 years now. You got any grandchildren? You need to get your grandchildren in there. I have, I just have grown-up children, but they're good with computers and they've been, they've, they've been good to me. And, and at this point, they're just laughing, laughing at me going, what in the hell happened to mom? (laughs) She's just like gone, just I'm just going, you know, take me. I'm here for you for the rest of my little bit of the journey I've got left. I just want to give what I've got to give and and take what I got. I'm here for you. And that's uh, that's the doing for me. And everybody's doing is going to be different. Once you figure this out, once you discover your wholeness, you're so able to just keep giving because it's the source is endless and you have no fear. It's like whoa, this is cool. So you could just start sharing this, this love, this bounty of love in all kinds of ways, in all yeah. beautiful ways. And the doing yeah. evolves, you know, we have different, it does. different mm-hmm. dharmas at different stages of life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what I was doing 25 years ago, I thought I'd be doing for the rest of my life. Now I'm uh-huh. doing something quite different, although in some ways similar, and who knows what it'll be 10 years from now. So, but there is a beautiful principle here, which is that you know, a lot of people are struggling for what they should do in life and what what, mm-hmm. what can I do that will be meaningful and so on. But, you know, it's like that biblical verse, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee. If you, if you kind of like get yourself established there in that, then the all else will be added in ways you might not have envisioned, you know, but that will be just perfect. I never anticipated because I am, if you can believe it, rather shy and private (laughs) and then to have this light go on that just says well you got to go out there honey and I just say okay and uh, it is and it keeps evolving that's what's so beautiful it's not like I mean don't look at me and say oh I've got it I got something I don't have something in that sense that it's the end of the road Mm -hmm. it's that I have discovered something that is like the door opened and now there's this field of possibilities that mm. that I'm just like wow this is beautiful let me just go see where it goes and I will I'll just watch and see it's like I feel like I'm riding a wave it feels like I'm I grew up at the beach and some of my book has little stories about that but a lot of the analogy is about riding waves I used to love to body surf Mm -hmm. and riding those beautiful waves and catching a wave and I just go wow life is so and getting pummeled by the waves and it's like life is really we're riding these wonderful waves it's always about riding to me or it's about riding on a back of a motorcycle and speeding through the hills or, or I mean, skiing. It's like, you were a, yeah, skiing, you were a skier for 30 years in Aspen. It is exactly Aspen. like skiing. You have yeah. to be strong and agile and free and, and, and go for it and balanced. Everything is an, an analogy for this, uh, this living it. And it doesn't 
end. It's just, it keeps going. And I keep learning. I keep seeing new insights and glimmers of the truth. But now it's in a way that I'm rejoicing in every new thing that happens and comes to me. And I, I know that whatever is going to happen is, is good. Yeah. It, it, that I know. And that's, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful way to be able to live in this world. The child does that. Huh. It, I don't know how, but it does. You know, one cool skiing analogy that I just thought of is that when you're skiing and you're turning and all, you kind of dive down the fall line. And, oh, definitely. And, uh, and that takes a certain kind of trust, but your skis come around, you know. Yes, And, and exactly. so that, there's an analogy for living here where you, you know, you just sort of do it and all else follows. Exactly. It's exactly like skiing straight down. And I remember, you know, when I was first learning to ski and I finally had to let go and do that and really just go right down the fall line. Because yeah, there's a tendency learn. to sit back oh, and try absolutely. to hold back and yeah. you and end then up on your butt. You let go and you go forward into it. And you're right. Those skis just turn and you can just carve and then mm -hmm. you got it. Yeah. But it is, you got to fall into it and let go and not be afraid. So, yeah, all that is part of it. And our journeys are so part of it. I mean, even speaking of uh, how my, I think part of writing this book that I wrote, I never thought that I would be writing like kind of my personal little story because it just didn't seem my nature to do that. But once I got the realization of what it was that I had to write, I started writing and I was just going to kind of write the song in my heart, let's say. But the song kept going, taking me back to descriptions of my life. Mm. And I went, wow, this is really interesting. I'll just, I'll just trust it. I'll just do this. But then you realize that everything in everybody's life, that's what's been teaching them. That's what's been their journey in their own way. And what a gift to share. What I'm sharing is that it's our journey through life that is the teacher. If you listen to it, if you watch everything about your life, it's teaching you all the time. And I ended up in some of the most remarkably beautiful places to live with a wonderful story, but all of it was teaching me. It wasn't like my story is any different or special, I guess is yeah. what I'm trying to say. It's just that it's my story. Sure, and there's a fundamental kind of understanding here, which is if, if we say that everything is teaching us, then there's a fundamental understanding that nature is intelligent, that, that things don't happen yeah. just mechanically or arbitrarily. Exactly. But, you know, some people say, well, the world is your guru, that every little bug that flies across your path or leaf that falls or anything else is just the display of intelligence and that the, the people, circumstances, experiences we encounter are not just happening capriciously, they're happening to facilitate our, our growth and evolution. And as I started writing my book, that became so clear to me. I mean, if there's anybody I wrote the book for, it was me, because <laughs> I went, wow, that's really interesting. Hmm. Everything, the whole journey of my life was designed perfectly for me. I mean, anybody else's will be designed perfectly for them. And you just go, wow. And even if it's not in this lifetime that they maybe get it or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people out there struggling with their life. If they don't get it this lifetime, they'll get it another lifetime. 
it's it's on its way. This is just, you know, wherever they're at is part of their journey, part of their unfolding. It's coming back to that we already, it's like we already know what we know, but we just get to rediscover what we know. We didn't even realize that we'd covered it up, yeah. I guess. And that journey through adulthood is very necessary. That journey of covering up that child, like you, you were describing, you know, the baby doesn't know who it is or what's going on. The journey through growing up and losing that childlikeness, that innocence, that uh, pure state of awareness, let's say, is a part of, a necessary part of it, because you have to like go through losing it, because by the time you come back to realizing you are that pure awareness, now you know what it is. Mm -hmm. So now you have understood it as something very important and essential. That's different from the baby that started with that pure awareness. Now it's the knowing of that pure awareness. Yeah. And that, that's important. You have to know. If you don't know what you know, it doesn't reach that fullness. And you know, this whole hide and seek point that you just brought out, kind of reminds me of something which is that you know they say man is made in the image of God and if you think about it the whole universe goes through a similar cycle and we're just kind of microcosmic examples of that but there's this whole you know explosion and proliferation of the universe and formation of stars and creation of heavier elements and eventual formation of, of sentient beings and so on and, and those sentient beings eventually come to through those instruments of sentient beings, God sort of recognizes itself in a living sense, in a, as a living, mm -hmm. in a living mm -hmm. reality kind of way. Yeah. And so there's this whole kind of hide and seek thing that seems to take place on a cosmic scale, um, because in in dumb matter, you know, just a rock, there there isn't the there isn't the structure or the the capacity to have that self recognition. The, the the instrument has to become much more sophisticated, and um, so in in the course of our individual evolution, it almost seems like a similar pattern where we get totally lost, and then we come back to, you know, becoming found or be finding in a way that is much more than where we started out. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's more than what we started with, and yet it is back to the beginning. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary journey. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Who's that poet? Um, not E.E. E. Cummings, somebody else. But he said that the end of all our seeking shall be to arrive at the place from whence we started and to know, it for, know the place for the first time. <laughs> oh, exactly. And it's just like that. It's like you just go, wow. Right. It's like a whole new dimension. It's like a whole new world. And yet I know, I, I know myself. I'm back at something that I yeah. know that it's real. And it isn't confusing. It isn't an unreality. It isn't an illusion. That's the other thing is I, I, I would love to be able to share is that trying to call this world illusion is as if it as if we're dreaming or we're no i don't think that's what all those teachers really meant what i think they were trying to do is to describe the subjective view it is all within awareness it's all light it's all like 
stuff of dream. They're not saying it's a dream. They're saying it's, it's like in a dream where everything is yourself. But this is like, this is like a really hard thing to describe with words because people cling to the word dream and then they cling to the word illusion and they cling, and it's 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 like no it's real like like a prism on the wall is real i can see it it just doesn't have any solidity to it mm. it's yeah. made of light it's yeah. made of something it's subjective and and mm -hmm. and yet it's objective too i mean i'm walking here and if if you know anything <laughs> You know, I can spill this and turn over the, and I can get hurt, and it, it it's objective too. Mm -hmm. So again, it's back to that. Nothing is eliminated. Right. That's what's really beautiful, but it is understood. Yeah, Ananda Maima said everyone is right from their own perspective, and uh, and Bob Dylan said I'm right from my side and you're right from yours, or something like that. Yeah. But um, it's like we're all filters, you know. Uh -huh. um, and there actually is no red out there or or hard or anything else. Those are just sort of ways that our the apparatus of our nervous system interprets light waves and and uh, you know right. other things in, in in order to make it a, a kind of an intelligible world that we can live in. So maybe in that sense we could say the world is an illusion because it's not actually utterly what it appears to be. To our, right. to our ordinary exactly. senses, but that's exactly. not to say that it should be brushed off or dismissed or exactly. devalued or anything like that. Exactly, and for me, that it is, let's say, let's use that word, an illusion, what's so beautiful, or light, or something in immaterial, it's like, wow, that's where the magic is. To see that I can make something feel like it's real and that I, that this world around me feels so solid and mm -hmm. what a profound beauty God is. I mean, to, to give us this, to be able to enjoy and feel and that was another thing. That was another thing that happened when I discovered this child and as I say, it began to grow. It began to get more confident, I guess is a way to, to describe. I began to realize that I was feeling way more, like my senses have come alive. Mm -hmm. I have completely, I mean, everything feels alive and real now, which is interesting because to call it an illusion is sort of like to think it, it isn't there. And it did just the opposite for me. It's now like everything is so beautiful, you know? It's like uh, everything is rich and the feelings and the taste and the sounds and the music and the people and the variety and the individuality and the expressions and I just people come in my store and I just love every single one of them mm -hmm. I just like wow this is so much fun and people will walk in and it's always like such a nice surprise to see who's coming into my life today you know mm -hmm. or or who isn't <laughs> and I'm just like wow that's cool about your know. senses coming alive you know because um that, to my way of understanding, is a kind of a second stage, if you will, in the in the growth of consciousness. Where initially, one might realize the self as unmanifest, pure consciousness, or something, but without much impact on sensory experience. But then, kind of 
living as that for a while, the, the senses do begin to appreciate more. Because you know you know who you are. How, how can you yeah. appreciate what anything else is if you don't know who you are? Who's going yeah. to appreciate the rose if I don't even know who I am? What's, the, what's this thing? But once right. you know who you are, then you can begin to appreciate what everything else is. And that begins to grow by degrees and greater and greater, deeper, deeper, more and more refined until eventually, you know, you, you really kind of want to meet the artist that painted this beautiful oh, picture. Yeah, so <laughs> And beautiful. then that desire becomes significant. Uh-huh. And everything about what I sort of thought I was supposed to get rid of mm -hmm. is, I'm going, wait a minute. I didn't have to get rid of my, even my desire. Now I'm going, like you just said, the desire to see and to touch and to know. I'm like, wow, there is a desire that is so beautiful and to create and to love and to, I'm going, I'm alive again. This really is being born again. I'm going, this is, this is extraordinary, except this time I'm not afraid. Again, it's like when I was a little kid, I wasn't afraid of anything. I just really wasn't. And I look back and I go, wow, this is really fun to be able to be living in this world and not be afraid of it and to feel it. Now it's so close to me. It's like the living presence, as they talk about the living presence, I just go, wow, the living presence is just thundering through me now all the time. Yeah. I feel this living presence. And it's almost breathtaking. I'm just like, whoa. And that other thing that get we get stuck in, and I would just like to sort of put this in there, is when you're studying this sort of non-duality thing and they do the non, you know, don't, don't label. I understand all that. I went through it, not to label things, not to, you know, to try to see things as just one and a tree. If you tried it, if you don't describe it, it'll just be. Keep trying to make a tree just be without describing it. Trying well, to make a now, just tree. It, it, yeah, it can't be just tree. It is tree. <laughs> and you're going, and each tree and each leaf and each little bit of bark and the little bugs climbing up. And it's just like everything comes alive again. Yeah. So that that thing about labels is it doesn't matter what you call it. It's just label it. Label it. That's fine. I know that's a rose and that's a that's a tree and that's uh that's Rick and that's Sandy and that I know all this. And it's not a problem. It's not a problem. Exactly. It's a joy. It's uh, a real joy. I thought of a metaphor as you were speaking. Kind of the overarching principle would be that individual love is concentrated universal love. And I thought of the metaphor of a magnifying glass. You know how when you're a kid, you take a magnifying glass and you can light mm -hmm. a fire with it by holding it a certain way and letting the uh -huh. sun shine through uh -huh. it. So mm -hmm. the, the sunlight gets kind of focused or concentrated right. by the magnifying glass and right. you, can, you can light a fire. So like, like that, it's like we're, we're like focal points or lenses or magnifying, yeah. magnifying glasses yeah. through which individual uh, universal love, universal consciousness can focus um, and become even more concentrated and more appreciative than if it were to just remain in an abstract, unmanifest you know, oh, state. Exactly, exactly. And then you get the joy of actually falling in love again, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, and finding somebody that you love. And it's a really fun thing. And you get to enjoy your life without, like you say, making it a problem. Yeah. And then the joy of even personal love with another person is like, 
wow, what a great, fun experience. It's like, this is what love is supposed to be, you know, yeah. instead of complications. And it's like, you're just going, ah, the freedom in me gets to be expressed in a love for another. What a gift, you know? Very I, nice. I, uh, Are you still married to the same person you've been married to for so many decades? Mm -hmm. My husband, I was married to him for 30 years. Mm -hmm. He was a handsome, beautiful, I adored him. He adored me. We had these three kids together. We lived in Aspen. He owned a restaurant. He was cool. I was in love with him all those years. Mm -hmm. When we moved to Ojai, he, he used to be a race car driver. Uh -huh. He actually used to race with Charlie Hayes. So they knew each other. I don't um, even know who Charlie, Charlie Hayes, is. Hayes Oh, Charlie Hayes was when it was a was a non-duality teacher. Oh, who, yeah, I guess so. Okay. Anyway, who used to be a race car driver. Right. Anyway, I thought maybe you'd know him because of that. When we moved to Ojai, he got himself three or four beautiful motorcycles because he loved race. He always loved speed and racing. And he got killed on a motorcycle wreck. Oh, sorry to hear it. Yeah, it's been 12 years. Mm -hmm. And it, it's going to be in my book about it. I mean, I write about it. That was hard to do, yeah. but I love him. I love him. I, I will always love him. He's, he's in my heart forever and he's with me and he's watching all this and he's just going, Hey girl, this, there's the girl I married, you know? And I'm yeah. just going, this is really sweet. It took me a long time to recover, but also that was the point where I found this child and understood what Bill was talking about. I had to, I had no choice at that point. I had to live it. Or not. I mean, that I knew that was it. I had to live what I had been studying all those years. I had to walk it. And I did. And uh, that's where the child was discovered, the, the, true, the true wholeness of myself and how it brought me to be where I am now. And uh, you still wear a wedding ring. Did you remarry it, or is that just no, you no, keep no. wearing it? No, I just keep, I just like all my diamonds. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, I just yeah. mentioned because you were talking yeah, about yeah. falling in yeah. love but like do, a, a I, new, fresh yeah. thing or something. I, ha I, have, I have a sweet, I just got somebody sweet in my life. Okay, But great. that was very recent, and yeah. I don't know where it's going. It isn't any, it isn't, it isn't anything, but it, I mean, it is, <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but I'm just saying, no, that's I, great. Congratulations. I'm just riding this whole thing like a joyful wave and just going, wow, love is really fun at this, you know, getting to come back and do this again. And as I say, being born again is like, it really is. I'm just going, this childlikeness really transformed me. Even just my whole life it's like i can i know that something happened because i'm a different person even though it's a familiar person to me it's it's what people would have known me and see me now they'd be going wait who who are you <laughs> <laughs> that's great uh, yeah so uh, what else is in your book that you want to give us a sneak preview of uh, that because yeah, I guess you're still writing it right so any, any other cool little actually, tidbits in there it's actually done and oh, okay. it's at the editor mm -hmm. oh and I'm so I, I'm gonna do it I'm just gonna put it out there and you know I don't have any idea if anybody's gonna what they're gonna think but it's just putting my heart out there and and it seems like I've been called to do it do you have some so kind of an email list on your website that people can sign up for so that if your book isn't ready now, which it isn't, but uh, they could sign up and you'll notify them when it becomes oh. ready? 
I don't, but that's a good idea. Yeah, you should try to set that up in the next I few days if you that. can, because I'll be putting I this interview up. And, but at least you have an email address that people can send, can contact you through, right? Or no? Uh, yes. On my website, I have... A contact my, page. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'll, so I'll so when out. I put this interview up, I'll, link, I'll you know, link to your website and people can go to that contact page and say, you know, right. please notify me when your book comes out or something. Right, exactly. Right. Yes. And it should be, I think it's going to be out in March. So it okay. shouldn't be Not too, too, far. too long. Yeah. 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 But usually and, with these interviews, the big flood of views comes in the beginning and then it kind of tapers I know. off. I know. It was too bad my book wasn't ready, but it yeah. wasn't. But hey, maybe I get to come back. Hey, hey. <laughs> There's a lot of demand for that. Oh, what a sales girl. <laughs> so mad. So, um, what else you want to tell us, more or less in conclusion, you know, about yourself, about Samuel, anything, about William, rather, uh, anything we kind of haven't covered that's kind of a sweet thing that, you know, you want to, people to know, or you want to leave them with? Anything? I don't know. Do you want me to read something? Oh, I was going to read if you If there's something. some little passage, yeah, that you want to read. I was going to read you something from Bill. Okay. This was very good. As long as it's not too long. I don't think it'll be too long. Okay. Let's try this. Um, if I can read, let's see. The, uh, oh, here it is. The receptive heart intuits a divine, super sensible inversion of things. I guess I just wanted to mention that I won't read the whole thing. Never mind. Oh, that's all but, right. So um, far it was good. <laughs> was it? Do you want to hear it? Yeah, so far so good. It was nice. Okay. Um, the okay. sensitive heart into it's a divine okay. a inversion of things. Inversion of things. Plotinus and Eckhart called it Meister just, Eckhart. Meister Eckhart, uh-huh. Called it just that, the divine inversion. It is the preface to the tangible world, and it is very difficult to either write or speak of because it has no recognizable frame of reference. Whatever has been said of it sounds mystical and arcane until we listen to our own heart in this matter. Then it is for each of us sublimely simple, a strange excitement and a deep joy. It is the goal of all honest disciplines, but the most distant and undeliverable dream of a charlatan. I love that because he's saying, you know, you can't really find it until you really are honest and pure. Mm. And I just think, isn't that beautiful that people who would want to use it won't be able to mm. because it can't be used. You can't get there. You can't know it until there's this purity and honesty in your own heart. And that you'll know yourself. That's only between you and God. You yeah. Know? Except you be yeah. as little children, you shall not enter the mm -hmm. kingdom of heaven, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, that passage meant that, especially the word inversion, that there's an inner treasure, you know, and because inversion means to turn inward. And right, that, right. Um, the, and that inner treasure, that treasure lies within us, uh, but... There has to be a certain innocence, certain purity, you know, certain sincerity, certain bravery, as you were saying earlier, to, uh, you know, really take that journey. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah. does. But it happens, and it will, you know, you just got to keep trusting your own heart and trusting yourself and trusting those glimmers of insight that you get. And, and it's, it's really a matter of listening to yourself rather mm -hmm. than it is to anybody else. And if you, can, if you hear what they're saying, keep reinterpreting it for you. You mm -hmm. know, don't just accept those words and think you know what they're saying, but keep working with it. And, and every new level you come up the mountain, you'll see the same view, but you'll see it in a new light every mm -hmm. time. And, and we've all had those experiences. We all know this. So. And one thing leads to the next, doesn't it? Exactly, it really does. Journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. I think that's an important principle to remind people of every now and then that, you know, this is not an overnight process necessarily. Uh, it's a lifelong process, of, and you know, and there are people who say, well, you know, reality is here now. Why, why chase the dangling carrot for years and years when you can just be that now? And that's true because you know that now is now but there's also that as we've been discussing this ongoing unfoldment you know so it's kind of one of these paradoxical both and kind of things yeah and that's been the other beauty about this is that now i realize the ability to see it all at once all at the same time to understand that yes there is this journey yes there is time yes it does grow yes it needs to be unwound and untangled every single truth that you've ever heard is true mm -hmm. and yet there is this wholeness that includes it all and that goes back to this child likeness that can that can see and be and live all of it at the same time and that is what i am just so astounded by is that i don't have to take either side i don't have to say it's no longer a paradox right. it's like it completely includes the whole thing and i can see i can see it all and love it all mm -hmm. and that's been divine yeah. Yeah, and Sargadatta said that the, something like the s symptoms or indications of spiritual maturity are the ability to embrace paradox and ambiguity. Mm -hmm. um, and so paradox doesn't necessarily mean either or, it means, that the, it means the embracing of things which others might see as having to be one or the other, but, right. you, but you know, a spirit, spiritually mature person can wrap her arms around both of them and, and they, exactly. get, they get along quite fine exactly they get along beautifully yeah. and it's like wow this is this is really amazing you know and and for me all i want to do is just i keep thinking i just want to share my joy i don't know what else to do i don't know how i don't want to teach i know that bill has written everything that you could possibly need because I got here and I'm still going. I don't mean to imply there's an end of this, but I, but okay, this opened the door and it's like, I want to just share that there really is a joy. There really is a freedom. I mean, it's real. And you just go, okay, what else can I do? I just got to just give my heart to my world. And that's what I'm here for. Yeah, I was listening to a talk uh, yesterday by my friend Gary Weber, whom I interviewed a couple of years ago, and someone asked him about the value of this, and he said, whatever it takes, go for it. He said, I wouldn't trade this for the world. 
and if I had to somehow snap back to where I was before this dawned, it would oh. be kind of unbearably agonizing. So, oh, so, truly. so whatever it takes. Truly, <laughs> truly, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I don't think we can snap back. <laughs> no, I was like, there's another dimension. I just went, whoa, I just, it's slight. It's the slightest. I keep going, this was just a nanosecond of another dimension, but I'm in another dimension. I'm just going, whoa, this is cool. But it isn't like weird. It's like beautiful. You're just going, it's the whole dimension. It's like now it doesn't have just a part of this or that. It's, it's like this is all this in heaven too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one thing I want to say about William's books, I have a couple of them here. Oh, good. Is I don't mean to sound crude, but they're like you could take them as good toilet reading because <laughs> because there are all these little nuggets, you know, like a paragraph uh -huh. here and a paragraph there, and, and there's hardly anything that's more than a page long that doesn't stand on its own as a nice little self-contained passage. It's good to know because some people don't like to read big, long tomes, you know, and exactly. these are all kind of laid out in little bite-sized pieces. Right. He and, and the way he writes in those first two books will trigger. I mean, they will pour over you so that while you're sitting there, you will go, oh, my gosh, I feel it. I can feel this, what he's talking about. I can feel what all these other guys are describing as awareness. He kind of has a way of actually bringing you there. And I don't know how he does that, but he, he's done it with a lot of people. So I know it wasn't just me. Mm -hmm. And it's such a gift to try to kind of get to realize what they're talking about when they talk about awareness, because I see so much confusion about what awareness means, you know. He has a way of uh, bringing it so that you're just going, oh, it's just this. Yeah. We are awareness. I am alive. I know. I know I am. This is awareness. It's nothing out there it's nothing distant it is what i am and somehow you just feel it's it sort of grace you and and it's yeah. really a nice uh, nice thing cool well some people love the fact that these interviews are really long and other people don't like it and they i get they say oh, can, can you make, can't you just do it in an hour but I, yeah. I like to go on with people for some time uh, and then really, really kind of cover uh -huh. it thoroughly uh, but we probably wrapped. We probably done. All right, done justice I think to so. Yeah. I think so. Yes. Thank so, you. So let's let me make a few concluding remarks. I've been speaking with Sandy Jones, who is the literary executor for William Samuel. I'll have a page up on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, as I always do, for this particular interview, and it will have little bios of Sandy and William, and also um, links to William's books, and also when Sandy's book gets published, I'll link to that. Incidentally, you know, you mentioned that you have like a whole box full of his writings that haven't been yeah. published. Are they just handwritten or are they typed or what? Most of them typed, mm. some of them handwritten. If I were you, I'd I get keep... them scanned. I mean, what if there were a fire or something? I mean, oh, you could get them I know. scanned and you could get I... them backed up. And... I have to do that. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I don't want to lose those treasures. Yeah. I will do, I'll do that. Thank yeah. you. You can buy a scanner and do it yourself or there are scanning services that'll do it for you. Sounds good. Yeah. I'll do that. I did want to someday maybe make a book out of them. I'm not sure. But anyway, I just haven't ever gotten to it. But yeah. I'll be sure and do that. Okay, good. So back to my conclusion. <laughs> uh -huh. So this is a, an ongoing series. If you've enjoyed this interview uh, and you want to check out others, go to batgap.com. Explore the menus there. You'll see the past interviews 
categorized in various ways. You'll see upcoming interviews listed. There's a donate button, as I mentioned in the beginning, which we depend upon people clicking. There is a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted, which means you'll get about one email a week, and a bunch of other things. Just explore the menus, and you'll, you'll see what's there. So thanks, Sandy. Hey, thank you, Rick. It was just beautiful that yeah. I got to do this. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, and thank you. Yeah, and thanks to those who have been listening or watching, and we will see you next week.